The Bible is a true story of a marriage. To be sure, the marriage is broken. But the Lord, our maker, is every believer's true husband. He restores the broken by giving his life up for us and making covenant with us. All who respond to his love by faith in his son, Jesus Christ, enter a relationship with him that is based on his covenant love. He promises to be faithful and he never fails to keep his promise. He says one day our marriage preparations here on this earth will be over and we'll celebrate our wedding with him in heaven. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Scripture even says that all earthly marriages refer to the church's heavenly marriage with Jesus. So it seems to me that the primary marriage in the universe is the one between Christ and us believers, his church. We were made for him. Which means all husbands here are temporary imperfect stand-ins for the perfect husband. All single people right here and now who are united to Christ by faith are actually taken by the faithful husband who will never leave them. Jesus Christ the Lord. Our maker is our husband. So from the perspective of the Bible, we cannot conceive of earthly, sorry, of marriage rightly without considering Christ's relationship with his church. And here's where our culture is forfeiting riches when it tampers with the beauty of God's design for marriage. It's a union between a man and a woman. And that one flesh union is a profound mystery about Christ and the church. To talk about marriage is to enter into good news territory, friends. So when we tinker with marriage, we miss the beauty that God intends us to see in it. We forfeit the riches of what we're meant to see. It's a profound mystery about Christ and the church. Today I'd like to speak to you about love and marriage. Whether you're in a broken marriage, separated, divorced, widowed, or single. Whether marriage is something you've always longed for but have given up on, or it's a topic that brings up pains from your past. My desire today is to fix your eyes on the greater marriage and the greatest husband of all, Christ the Lord, our faithful groom and husband. Paul said to the Corinthians, get this verse, friends. He said, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I start here today because I'm convinced that a connection with the living God is absolutely necessary to empower us to love others in the ways he calls us to love, especially in marriage. Marriage will require staying power to love our spouses that none of us have. Only a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, our one husband, gives us the power to love. So what is love according to God? Today we're going to take our cues, not surprisingly, from the Bible. And specifically from a text in the Bible that highlights and explains what true Christian love looks like. And though most of us have probably heard the Bible's definition of love and marriage plenty of times, 
I think we need to tune into God's word again. Because I'm afraid we're usually more influenced by the ways Netflix, YouTube, and TikTok define love than we are by what we see in the Bible. We don't want to admit it, but most of us equate love to arousal and attraction more than self-denial and service. So it's time to be honest about whether or not our understanding of love is biblical. If we're honest, we might have to admit today that we need to repent. I like what Rob Green says in his excellent book for premarital couples called Tying the Knot. He says this, If your definition of love is little more than the warm fuzzies, physical attraction, and the ability to have fun together, your relationship may demonstrate not how much you love the other person, but listen to this, how much you each love yourself. What you have found is a person who helps you love you better than anyone else has. That's a sobering and scaring thought. Biblical love is interested in giving instead of taking and serving instead of being served. Biblical love does not demand from the other person, but willingly gives. Biblical love seeks the good of the other. Well, today we're going to be challenged to consider whether the ways we think we're loving actually meets God's standard. Or, if as C.S. Lewis said, all we mean by our love is a craving to be loved. This is a problem I think we all have. But I don't think this problem is unique to the West or our secular age. This problem goes deeper and further back than that. I think this is a universal problem with our self-preoccupied, self-centered hearts. Even when we love, it's about us. We're bent in on ourselves, aren't we? It's not unheard of that Christians who say they love God live with an unbiblical definition of love and are frankly unloving. In fact, this was one of Paul's main problems with the church in Corinth in the first century. They had flashy gifts, were doing a lot of religious activities, they knew a lot of theology, but they were arrogant and unloving. So he took time to outline for them what, the true, what true Christian love is all about. The passage we're going to look at today is found in 1 Corinthians 13, so please feel free to turn there or open your tablet to that. Meet me on page 959 of the Bibles in front of you on, in 1 Corinthians 13. This has sometimes been called the love chapter. In this chapter... It's called that for good reason. In this chapter, we see this word love, or agape in Greek, nine times. Agape, love, gives the the sense of selfless concern for the welfare of others. It's it's not a self-centered love. It's, It's concerned about the concerns of others, the interests of others. This passage is often read and applied at weddings of Christian couples that are getting married on their wedding day. Because it shows us what uh, true Christian love looks like. And many uh, snarky Bible students are quick to point out that the context of this chapter isn't directly speaking to a married couple. And that's true. It's addressed to a church. But I think this text is a fitting place for us to go when we're thinking about love and marriage. Because if the church is the bride of Christ, then marriage and the church are not unrelated topics to be separated. They are to be understood together. I think these words correctly apply in a marriage and on the wedding days of Christian couples. So if you plan to have this read, go ahead. But to be clear, 
its first application is to everyone in the church because it's about Christian love. And the church is a gathering of Christians who are marked by love for one another, right? God commands us to love him and to love our neighbor as ourself. And if we truly love God, we'll want to share his love with our neighbors. And the closest neighbors married couples have is their spouse. So a great test for how we love our neighbor is to consider how we love our spouse, the one we're married to. Today's text applies to the church, yes, whether you're married or not. And it also applies to married couples. So nobody gets off the hook today saying, well, this doesn't apply to me. If you're a true Christian, you are called to love others in the ways that you're going to see in this passage. Today we're going to learn that true Christian love is, is measured by God's standard. True Christian love is measured by God's standard. Now before we dig into this text, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we understand that we need to hear from you today. The way we respond to people is not loving. The way we automatically think about love is not right. So please fill our minds and our hearts with what you say and with what true love really looks like. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see in this text today is that true Christian love is not merely performance. True Christian love is not merely performance. Look at verses 1 to 3. Paul's speaking to the Corinthian church here. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. True love, according to the Bible, always requires sacrifice. God says he loved us and gave his son for us, right? He loved and he gave. But biblical love cannot always be measured simply by observing the outward actions or sacrifices of others. There's discernment required. Certainly the things we do as people count for something, but they're not all that counts. Looks can be deceiving. Motives are also to be considered when assessing love. Now, Paul has just been talking to the church about their spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Now, this church had big noise and big names in it. They were popular and proud. But Paul says, listen, listen if you speak in tongues or prophecy and know a whole lot about the mysteries of the gospel, you got your doctrine straight, which they did, but don't have love, your spiritual gifts are worthless. They're no good for anybody. God intends for our gifts to build others up, not to create a stage for a show for us. In fact, he even says that if they have faith to move mountains around but don't have love, they're nothing, worthless. Those are pretty strong words. He even says, if you sacrifice your very life or give away your goods... If you become a martyr or, or some benevolent giver of a lot of your money, but aren't living with true Christian love, you gain nothing. 
These are challenging words about people who are gifted and sacrifice in the name of love. They're active in the church. The challenge for us, friends, is that, believe it or not, if if people are not motivated by love as God defines it, their performances and sacrifices are pointless in God's sight. And that's because, as we'll see as we go through this passage, it's possible to do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. We may even pretend to love others by performing for them. It's possible to use our gifts in the church to build up our own platform and empire. It's even possible to be talented and not have a supernaturally changed heart. Using our gifts without graces can be extremely dangerous because we may mistake mere performance for love. But Christian love intends to benefit others. True believers don't try to make a show about themselves. True Christian love does the right thing for the right reasons. To please God, both our motives and our behaviors are to be fueled by love. A love that looks out for the interests of others. Now Paul's use of the phrase, I am nothing and I gain nothing, in verses 2 and 3, refers to the credibility of their love. Whether or not he's implying they were not true Christians here is a conversation for another day. But his point is that when they're performing, whether it's doing a Sunday service or making progress in their prayer life, or quiet time, if they're doing it without being motivated by a loving concern for others, it's not true love as God defines it. Because God esteems character more than gifts. God esteems character more than gifts. And without a supernaturally changed heart, and the Spirit energizing our activity with His love, our gifts are worthless. True Christians will show true Christian love. Summarizing this whole uh, passage in his book called uh, Charity and Its Fruits, Jonathan Edwards says, All virtue that is saving and that distinguishes true Christians from others is summed up in Christian love. So let's pull over and check ourselves here. In our church relationships, in our marriages, are we pretending to love others by performing for them without sincerely looking out for their best best interests? Is our service for others really about us? Why do we do what we do? Why are you doing what you're doing? Is it motivated by a sincere desire to do others good? Or do we want to be the star of the show? We've just been given a negative correction against performance pretending to be love. And if that hasn't challenged you, be prepared for a passage that has become a painful pleasure of mine. I don't have to read long before I'm convicted in the sense I don't understand love at all. So let's come to this text with a humble posture, asking Jesus to show us where we fall short of his standard of love. As we do, we're going to be taken by the hand, as it were, into the heart of biblical love. And maybe, much like me, you'll be surprised to notice that there's not a lot of noise here. We're not the star of the show here. There's not a lot of accolades. And that's because, as God defines it, um, love is is very different from what we're used to. And that's because... 
love as God defines it really isn't about us. It's not about us. In these verses, in verses 4 to 8, we see true Christian love is personified and expressed. Let's look at verses 4 to 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist, insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, notice all the positives in this list. Um, As you see them, consider that these are truly defining the person of Christ to us, aren't they? He showed us what this kind of love is actually like in person. He expressed it throughout his life consistently. He is the definitive lover. He is love personified. His words, deeds, and character show us what God's standard of love is. And those who follow Jesus and have received his love and his spirit personify and express a similar character quality as his love. Keep that in mind as we look at the character qualities of one who loves in this passage. This is very contrary to what Hollywood describes as love. This is how God defines it, describes it. True Christian love will look like this, either in marriage or any other relationship. So let's have these words um, serve as an x-ray for our hearts. And with each character quality, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I loving according to this definition? Am I loving according to this definition? All right, let's start. Verse 4. Love is patient, meaning it preserves peace and restrains wrath. Parents, how do you feel right now? On your way to church today, were you patient with your kids? Anyone convicted yet? First quality, and we're all convicted. But we live in a very impatient culture, don't we? Where it's the norm to be frustrated and impatient with others. But that's not love according to the Bible. And if you're patient and you're a patient person, thank God for that, but you will actually stick out like a sore thumb in our society today. Love is patient. Next, it says love is kind. It gives friendly merciful, helpful attention to others. Do I? Moving on. Love doesn't envy. It renounces negative, self-centered feelings about the gifts and achievements of others. It's not slow to encourage others in their giftings. Ask yourself, am I loving or envious? Love doesn't boast. It doesn't heap praise on oneself. It's not a bragger. In a conversation, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're not the me monster. Okay, Have you ever heard of this? Always trying to have a, a better story or idea uh, to present ourselves as better than the others around the circle. Love is not like that. It doesn't boast. Anyone convicted yet? Me too. And while this is a humbling passage... And these attitudes are sinful. God doesn't leave us alone in our filth and sin, does he? To love others the way God tells us to requires 
depending on him, trusting in him, it requires his presence and love in us, filling us to flow through us to others. And thanks be to God, he's always working on his children, making us more like him, more loving. Now let's continue in verse 4. Love is not arrogant. It doesn't have an exaggerated or self-aggrandizing view of oneself. It doesn't have an inflated ego. Now, what if we are arrogant Christians? How do we remedy such a disease as pride? How do proud Christians become humble? Enter Jonathan Edwards. It is the discovery or sense of God as lovely. And not only as lovely, but as infinitely, as infinitely lovely above us in loveliness that works humility in the heart. Do you see God as lovely, as infinitely more lovely than yourself in loveliness? When you do, you will be humbled. Verse 5 says, love isn't rude. It doesn't disgrace or demean others. Have you ever met a rude Christian? Rude to their spouses, rude to their servers at restaurants, Rude in public, rude in private. Maybe we make excuses for them. We say, oh, that's just the way Billy is. Well, if Billy is rude and he calls himself a Christian, he needs to change. We shouldn't make excuses for Billy and his rude behavior. That needs to change. He needs to repent of his rude attitude because love is not rude. Moving on, love does not insist on its own way. It's, it's, it's not narcissistically fixated on oneself and getting its own way at all costs. I will win. Love doesn't say I will win. Love says, my wants aren't all that matters. So husband, you say you have needs, right? You need sex, you need respect, you need dinner on the table at 6 o'clock. Are those real needs according to the Bible? Or are those just things you insist on having? Jesus lived his whole life without sex. A pure virgin. And he, the Son of God, was disrespected at every turn. We need to follow him to see what true love is. I love what Ed Welch says in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. He says, self-serving needs are not meant to be satisfied they are meant to be put to death. But what about the fact that Scripture commands us to love each other? Doesn't that mean we need love? Not necessarily. More accurately, it means that we need to love rather than we have a psychological deficit that must be filled with love. We need to need other people less and love other people more. This means, men, that when we come home after a long day at work and there's no food at the table... Instead of yelling, we get a pan and start cooking. We don't insist on having it our way. Are we loving like this? Everybody coughs because it's getting awkward now. But let's put our guards down and embrace the fact that we've got some growing to do. Verse 5, love is not irritable. It refuses to get irritated and fly off the handle. It doesn't have a short fuse. 
We use words like crabby, moody, or grumpy. These are attitudes of unloving irritability. Love isn't resentful. It doesn't nurse a grudge and refuse to forgive. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Loving people don't laugh at others as they carry on in sin. Because sin destroys people. So a truly loving person can't wink at wrongdoing as if it's no big deal. Sin is a big deal. Rather, it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It endures through unloving acts imposed on them by others. Loving people even extend love to enemies. Isn't this the way of Jesus? Loving people even believe all things. This doesn't mean we believe all kinds of things from all kinds of people. Of course, the Bible doesn't endorse believing false teaching. Christians aren't to believe lies and liars blindly. They need to use discernment and wisdom. Proverbs 14, 15 says, The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. So what does this mean, believes all things? I think Paul's saying something close to our phrase, giving the benefit of the doubt. A truly, person isn't, a truly loving person isn't filled with suspicion and doubt towards others. Love hopes all things. Loving people don't give up on people. They take an optimistic view of people based on Christ's work in them. Love endures all things. Loving people persevere in loving. As we move through this passage, this passage is moving through time into eternity. Listen to the last quality. It says, love never ends. Love doesn't get fed up, fed up and stop. In fact, Christian love is expressed and experienced in heaven forever because God never stops loving us, does he? Jonathan Edwards, in his book called Charity and Its Fruits, and it's a long book about 1 Corinthians 13, the very last chapter of it is an absolute gem. It's called Heaven, a World of Love. Don't you like that? Heaven, a World of Love. In eternity, we won't be separated from our true beloved or his bride. We'll be reunited with them in love. We'll experience and express love to God in some amazing way forever and ever. Love never ends. Now with these verses in mind, let's ask ourselves, where am I living in unloving ways towards others? Towards my spouse? How are these words revealing unloving cracks in my character? Maybe we should just start with one or two. Confess these things to him and your spouse. Ask him to make you more loving towards others, whether it's your roommate, boss, or spouse. This is God's standard of love. And if we're honest, it's not how most of us live. Over the years, I've observed some things about love and marriage in the church. Have you ever noticed that in church, often we observe couples start hanging out? Then we see that they get engaged. And then they marry one another. We express excitement for them at each of these milestones or checkpoints, right? We say things like, so I hear you're getting married. That's so exciting. And we are excited, and they're excited, of course. We ask, when's the big day, right? And we, we may even join them and celebrate with them on their wedding day, if, if we're invited, of course. But we, we support marriage. We observe people going through the dating stages and, and engagement stages and, and through marriage. And we observe things. And, and we, 
we join and even celebrate them on their big day. I'm not criticizing the support the church has of married couples. One of the joys of my life is actually sitting down with people that are getting married or even people that are in marriage and, and doing some conversations with them. But I don't know that our support as a church goes far enough. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Okay, um, after the wedding day, do you keep observing people? So you, you see them on the wedding day, they're, they're so happy. They're filled with smiles. After the wedding day, do you keep observing the couple? Do you see what I, I see? It happened to me, okay? So please know I'm not singling anyone out. We're talking about love and marriage here. <laughs> and I know there's exceptions to this. But what I experience and I often see is that married couples, they get married, of course. And the wedding day is the happiest day you've ever seen them. They never stop smiling. It's a glorious day. Then they go to their honeymoon and we stop seeing them for a couple weeks. But when they come back to church, they're not smiling anymore. <laughs> What's going on? In fact, they can't even force a smile now. You don't even know if it's the same person. Now look closely. They look burdened. Dare I say troubled. What's going on? Well, we can't be sure without actually talking to them. So we ask them, how are they doing? And they dodge the question. What's happening? Again, it's hard to know without a conversation. So I, I, would be, I don't want to be quick to judge here. But I know for me, what happened to me was this. As I moved from a single person in church to a dating couple with my wife, to an engaged couple with her, even in the premarital stage, I was filled with excitement, right? But few people were asking me the hard questions. And it turns out I had unrealistic expectations of marriage. And I also had a completely unbiblical view of love. As an engaged couple, most of our time was spent planning the big day, planning the wedding. I wish I would have spent more time studying this chapter and what God says about love and marriage, truly. Because sometimes people like me get married, thinking marriage will erase all their problems. Of course, I would never admit it, because I was too arrogant. Love is not arrogant. Um, but marriage doesn't erase all our problems. Instead, it's actually an environment for all our deepest problems to come out into the open and be shared with another, right? We bring our backpacks of sin right into the marriage and drop it on our spouse's lap. We get married thinking we're gentle and kind to find out that we're actually angry and vengeful. Oh boy. We're not loving each other at all. We're always mad at each other now. It's not fun anymore. It's not like the wedding day now. We hardly talk anymore. And what do couples do when they aren't loving in Christian ways like this? And their spouse isn't loving them in Christian ways. Sometimes they hide. They might feel shame and they run from their friends at church. If this is you, you're not alone. I share my story because I too felt this. I was embarrassed to admit it. I said I loved God. I had been converted. I was a real Christian. I even said I love my wife. But my working definition of love wasn't biblical at all. I wish I had spent more time humbly meditating on 1 Corinthians 13 and applying it to my own heart. My love was all about me, friends. 
And there I say still is at times. I still have to change. I didn't listen to my wife. I was impatient. I was unkind, irritable, resentful, arrogant. Can you relate? I had to learn confession and repentance in a most practical way with my wife. We had dozens of hard and awkward conversations. I had to learn how to love my wife God's way, by faith. Which is really how we learn most things in the Christian life, isn't it? We learn them not because we're automatically good at them or experts at them. No, we learn by faith. And we learn to love by faith. When it's hard, by faith. When it hurts, by faith. When you have to face the facts that you've failed again, we learn to love by faith in the God who loves us and tells us to love others. Now today, if love and marriage is hard for you, please talk to someone before you leave. If you're being humbled and convicted because you're not loving your spouse like you ought to, let us pray with you. Know that you're not alone. Don't struggle in silence and isolation. Come out in the open with it. There's healing and help in the Lord. One of the limitations of speaking to a big crowd on something so personal as this is that it's impossible to know all the specifics of every situation, right? I speak today not knowing all the specifics of your home life. That requires a dialogue and lots of time and listening. This is just a monologue for a few minutes. But if you need more specific pastoral care, please don't be shy to reach out. If you prefer to talk about these matters discreetly, send us an email. We want to help. Let's talk. Now the next thing we see in this passage is that true Christian love is preparing us to see God. True Christian love is preparing us to see God. Look at verse 8 through 13. As for prophecies... They will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know. In part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now remember, Paul is talking to a church who was showing off their gifts, right? They are active in the church. They're doing a lot of things, making a lot of noise. But he says here that gifts are actually temporary while love is permanent. The gifts we have on this earth are meant to build up the church in the present age. Absolutely. But once the church is in glory and glorified, our gifts will not be necessary anymore. They will pass away. And this won't be a loss. Because as verse 10 says, whether it's prophecies or tongues or knowledge, they will pass away and be replaced by the perfect. I think the perfect refers to meeting Jesus personally here. Face to face. It would be ridiculous to think of an adult picking up his baby talk. Right? This is an analogy here. He says, it's also ridiculous to prefer the partial gifts down here in this present age to the perfect person of Christ in heaven. We're being prepared to see God face to face. 
So the Christian life here, the Christian's life here and now, whether we're single or married, is preparation for the perfect husband. One day we'll see him face to face and become like him. Right now we're just enjoying the appetizers of the wedding. But when our groom comes for us, he's going to sweep us off our feet with perfect love and his perfect presence. We'll know fully and be fully known. I don't think this means that we'll one day be all-knowing in the same way that God is all-knowing. We're still the creature, he's the creator. But we'll experience a deeper knowledge of him, a perfect intimacy with him, because he shares himself with us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason, why the, world, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. He's going to sweep us off our feet with his perfect love and presence one day. Let's finish with verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these things, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love emphasize the virtues of true believers, true Christians. But here, love is called the greatest of these. Uh, maybe that's because when in heaven, we won't need faith or hope anymore. Because these were only necessary in the present age, but we're going to enter the promised land. And once we enter the perfect presence of the love of God, love will remain. The one who's received God's love expresses God's love to others and is being prepared for a place of love where all the redeemed will experience God's love unhindered forever. God is a true husband our hearts we're made to embrace covenant love with forever. This is where biblical love takes us. So, you want to get married? Uh, do you know what true love looks like? Being married to a spouse isn't God's plan for everyone's life. But don't let that steal your joy. You're not missing out. Husband, husbands and wives aren't meant to be the source of our joy or our happiness. As C.S. Lewis said in his book called The Four Loves, he says, Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. If love is to be a blessing, not a misery, it must be for the only beloved who will never pass away. The Lord our Maker is our ever-faithful, ever-true husband. The cross and resurrection show us the depths of his covenant love. Have you embraced him? He's the only beloved who will never pass away. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we take a moment now to confess that we need your spirit in our life to fill us more with a sense of your love and with more power to love others. Please grant us the freedom to love our neighbor as ourself. And for those who are in marriage right now, 
that they would sense their need for Jesus, their need to know him deeper so that they could love their spouse better. Pray this in Jesus' name.